Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. Welcome back to this series about a specific group of change makers, the Women's Empowerment Network, working toward greater representation and development of women within a very white, male-led organization. Our organization was male, pale, and stale. It was their kingdom, and it was like Lord of the Flies. In 2017, Wen was up and running. They had launched their new ERG, and then a bombshell dropped. An anonymous person designed a guerrilla-style campaign around breaking ceilings. Most people in the organization got a letter with demands, an email, and some cute stickers. This accelerated the conversation and actions. A lot of people were feeling that, and then that action just like ignited the, the reality that it was a big cultural issue. Big enough for someone to do that. You know, that's really bold. Right. And we believe it was like somebody who was actually leaving the company that week. And so she just blasted it out. It shook some people up. It really made them think, you know, because the men, quite frankly, no clue. They had no clue. So to understand the context and the players of what happens next, you have to understand that this is a culture within a culture. It's a regional campus with several brands and shared services like HR and legal. And then there's corporate elsewhere in the U.S. And the perspective is that they're overlords with their own HR team. So within both of these structures, corporate, regional, there's WEN, the Employee Resource Group. And you may not know what an ERG is. Sometimes they're called affinity groups, but basically they provide support and development to employees who identify with a specific group. So for example, women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, some companies even have ERGs for cat lovers or soccer players. They're a way to connect people and build a sense of community. They empower employees by giving them a collective voice to speak with decision makers. They support learning and development by offering leadership opportunities and creating visibility for those that are active. They may or may not receive funding from the company. Ideally, they work in collaboration with HR and the company leadership. They bring value to the company by providing a resource for leadership regarding staff issues, community needs, and policies. They can be an asset in business decisions to make better, more inclusive products and services. They support retention because employees are likely to stay with the company longer if they're part of a strong community and feel heard. So there are lots of benefits for both individuals and companies to support employee resource groups. But this can get messy when it seems that the behaviors of the company are at odds with the desires of the ERG or vice versa. And when you throw HR in the mix, there's another level of complication. In this case, you have two different levels of leadership, regional and corporate, plus two different HR teams, one which supported the creation of WEN from a financial and logistical perspective, and one thousands of miles away with little exposure to the regional culture. 
With that, let's get back to what happened after the Break Ceilings campaign hit the ground. But I do remember there being sort of this like hustle and bustle in the office and kind of a reaction and there was a reaction happening. And an email communication that came out that sort of talked about it, but really just kind of a reactionary email yeah. that was trying to do some damage control. Yeah. So following the breaking ceilings bombshell, corporate sent their newly appointed director of diversity out to fix it. They sat down with some members of WEN and talked about next steps, which included focus groups. Sadly, they didn't um, organize as well as they thought they were going to. So had meetings with me and Amy, maybe she was there, I don't remember, but he goes, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna have four different focus groups and the first three are women only and the last one men can be in it. But apparently they didn't tell the men that because they signed up. It was kind of like sign up for what you want and what time you want it. So it was more convenient for who was ever, you know, instead of saying these are your time slots, come to it because this is the only time you have. So the company's diversity and inclusion representative flew out and he conducted these listening sessions with a female colleague taking notes. What ended up happening is we ended up talking more about leadership and the the horrible realities of leadership. We ended up talking about HR a lot, even though we had HR groups in the room. You know, we did we did talk about women's, you know, what women need from the men on that campus, but we didn't feel free to do that because the men were in the room and we, they weren't supposed to be right away. I did participate in a focus group and I remember it being, it felt very um, scripted and it didn't feel like a lot of what I wanted to get out of it really kind of happened. I think other people participated in focus groups where you know, people really were emotional and shared and I did not participate in one like that. Yeah. Do you remember any of the things that you talked about? Like not you personally, but the whole conversation? I, I think that I remember it just feeling very clinical in terms of just it felt like corporate cleanup, like we're doing, we're checking the box. We've we've talked about what we need to be talking about with you, you know, the associates. It didn't feel like everybody was coming to the party to get the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I got to see Reggie's notes, like his takeaways after all the focus groups were done. And he was like, here's what the problems are. And none of the things that he put down were things that I had been hearing from women, that I had been hearing in WIN or in, you know, people just coming by HR and like wanting to talk about issues that they had. And so I don't know if it's that A, he was a man, so he's hearing it through man ears, you know? Yeah. Or if it's because he came from corporate, and so he even speaks a different language as far as coming from yeah, <laughs> coming yeah. from there and coming from corporate and not having the same language that we use here and not understanding our processes here and um, the way that our teams interact and all that. So that was a little bit disappointing. I mean, I lean, I lean more towards him not having an understanding versus him hearing what he heard and deciding not to pay attention to it. You know what I mean? 
I do, but I also feel like three years later, nothing has changed. Like nothing. (laughs) Not really. I mean, I think like the corporate arms got put around it to say like, "Oh, we heard you. We saw you." we're going to do something to fix it. And then it became, again, more clinical, which has always been what's turned me off around a lot of the corporate stuff that we ever did, mm-hmm. you know, and, and our res- my resistance to having anything corporatized. Amy actually attended two focus groups. The first one seemed productive, but by the second one, it seemed like the corporate team had shifted their approach. And it was very similar to Karen's. It's interesting because the first one was a lot of conversation about bro culture and like women on campus and that kind of thing. The second one was very directed questions, more focused on like general company culture. There were very directed questions to get like specific information out of people that wasn't directly tied to gender bias or anything like that. It was, I mean, it was valuable because it was like compensation and benefits. And I was surprised at how frank people were about like how shitty the salaries were and that we're not competitive for the Bay Area. And I did bring up the mama bear comment the like be more of a mama bear in terms of my management of my team and a male VP looked over and was like you have got to be kidding me someone actually said that to you and I was like "Uh uh-huh which was very satisfying the idea was that the corporate team would come out ask their questions in the focus groups and then come up with a plan to address the issues that they uncovered People openly shared their feelings and ideas in these sessions. And then, from Wynn's perspective, it was crickets. They were frustrated that the outcomes from the focus groups weren't being shared. Donnie explains the pressure Wynn leadership was feeling to push for transparency. I think that kind of spurred us a little bit more. Amy and I have to start asking. So we're like, all right, ask. We have our members sitting around the table going, ask. Why? We're not getting any information out of those focus groups. We're the one that helped put together. We're part of the reason why you're here. Why aren't you telling us anything about them? Why are we not seeing anything from them? And they never said anything, but they definitely started doing things. So I definitely noticed that shift of them going, okay, because they heard a lot about leadership. And we had a new design leader came in and they kind of scrubbed out all of the, you know, people that were in a negative space about the company and helping it with its toxicity that's in it, you know. And so some of those things started to be, you could recognize them. But as a person that wasn't and when and didn't ask all the time and look for those, you're not going to fucking know if anybody actually, if they actually did anything about it because it was pretty minuscule unless you're looking for it. Within six months of the Breaking Ceilings campaign, focus groups were conducted and an inclusion and diversity action plan was created. So things were happening. 
largely at that corporate level, so I understand why frustration was bubbling and Donnie felt that nothing was happening. As an example, an update may come via email that says, Following feedback from the focus groups, we are launching a multi-tiered action plan that creates a roadmap of how we can develop a culture that is respectful, inclusive, and focused on teamwork and accountability. Right? So that's great, but what exactly does it mean? What is changing? That's what people wanted to know. The first step in the action plan was training for all staff. That is a significant financial investment. A reputable diversity and inclusion practitioner was hired, who met with employees and designed a workshop specifically for organizational leadership that focused on unconscious bias. What she found in her interviews mirrors what WEN and the Break Ceilings campaign had brought to the forefront. There was a boys' club, and favoritism was running rampant, leaving many to feel unheard and undervalued. So the action plan started with the training. And the facilitator who led the leadership sessions ably pushed the comfort level and talked about white privilege. Here's Jen, a VP who attended the training. You're in a unique position because you guys were like off in the innovation building and I know not all of that like made it over to you. Yeah, so do you remember like the things that you talked about during the training? I remember it was that woman, Sarah's like first day on the job or whatever. And I remember the team really bruised, really upset. And Danny and I were just like, wow, this is such a different culture than our teams have. It was visibly a different environment for those that worked. Yeah. Like in what way was it different? They, I can't remember if some people cried even, but I think, um, I think again, there's just a lot of the tension around women, right? Like there's a lot of tension about women not being heard, women being talked over. It just sounded like not an equitable culture, whereas uh, Danny and I's organization were much more diverse. I mean, I had like a mini UN, right? My team was very diverse from different countries, different languages, different backgrounds, different skill sets. So I think uh, my team felt that it was much more equitable. And I think same for Danny. Like, I don't think there was... There were many more women and men in his organization too at the VP level as well. So I think we just have a different purview and different uh, outlook on these things. I continued providing workshops at lower levels. And here's what Donnie had to say about them. And what did you think about it? And I won't be offended. (laughs) It didn't seem hard enough. It seems uh, more uh, safe than it should have been. But I mean, you can only do so much. You're always like in that balance of like, well, as my job, I'm only supposed to do this much. I mean, I know that's what happened with you. I'm sure that that was sort of so conflicting for you for a while because you were kind of like, no, we really need to voice these bigger things. But I have to put myself in a professional box and say it as politically correct as you can. So therefore, people who have terrible unconscious bias walk out of there thinking they did a great job. What do you wish had like been really pushed in that training or in other ways? I don't know. I think that if they could just be more, we're just trying to get people to be transparent. You know, we really were. Because I that's the way of the world. Everything's transparent. If you're transparent, then you have to be held accountable for your actions. Right. 
And you could be part of the Me Too movement, but secretly be, be the predator of the Me Too movement as executives and companies. Right. And being transparent, you can't, you can't do that kind of shit. You can't do things with your secretaries. You can't do fucking Mad Men shit <laughs> in the 2000s. Right. You just can't do it. <laughs> right. So for a minute, training like this was all over the news as Trump pushed some executive order banning it. Though it can be difficult to think about and talk about the biases that we hold, nothing is controversial in this type of training. We talk about how everyone has unconscious bias. We talk about how those biases can affect what we say and what we do. And these behaviors can be referred to as micro or macro aggressions. We talk about how to give feedback. And we talk about inclusive leadership behaviors that can be simple things. Look around. Make sure that you've invited a diverse range of employees to your meeting. If you're going to have lunch, offer vegetarian options. If you're talking to someone in a meeting, don't look at your phone. Simple stuff that if you just think about it, if you're just aware of it, it really can make a big difference. Linda attended one of the workshops. Here are some things that she remembers. Everybody has unconscious biases and just being able to be cognizant and take a step back when you, you know, have an instinctive feeling or something, just to question it first. I mean, it was, I thought it was a really good training. I think everybody needs that because you're going to have unconscious biases towards, you know, a certain, how people look or how they dress. And it's not necessarily fair to do that, you know, because we do it to guys. So how do we break that uh, bad habit? I mean, there's, unco- and there's also like stereotyping for a reason. There's like, you got to right. follow your instincts, right? Like if someone's right. coming at you in a dark alley at night, wearing a beanie and a hoodie, like, again, at that point, you might want to use your unconscious bias because the <laughs> probability you're in a dark alley, it's 2 a.m. Like, you know, so it, it's, you know, it's being able to filter out the variables, right? Totally. Yeah. And it's at least being aware of that. Like, what is causing me to be afraid and should I be afraid? Or not con- or not even afraid, but like concerned or whatever it is that you're processing. I was yeah. on a call yesterday with a vendor and this guy had this really thick Jersey accent. And I was like, man, this guy's an idiot. Like, I cannot handle the way that he's talking. And I was like, no, that's fully my, it was not even unconscious at that point. I was like conscious of the fact that I like fully just had this bias towards this guy just because of the way he talked. Oh, (laughs) Linda and I are digging into one type of unconscious bias that has surfaced for me recently. But here's the thing, training alone won't change a culture. Only people who take the things that they've learned and transform it into new actions can do that. And that takes time and ongoing support and recognition of the new behaviors. They have to be normalized and systematized. I don't think that he's an idiot. He just sounds like he's an idiot. See, these are all great, you know, these are all great life lessons. So, I mean, people do that all the time. So outcomes following training will not be immediate. So what did happen? Let's hear from Amy about what she saw as outcomes of the Break Ceilings campaign. Actual conversations like that did get HR's attention and the executive's attention and 
you know, resulted in the unconscious bias trainings and I think raised the status of when with the executives and leadership. I think largely in part, it was like, okay, so there, there's a problem and people are upset. Ooh, look at this. We have this employee resource group that we can lean on and work with to make it look like we're doing something. What, what were those conversations like? And did you feel like they were open to hearing what you had to say and open to making changes? I feel like they were open to listening and to hearing it. I don't know how open they were to actually doing anything about it. Like we had to make everything happen. Yeah, there was a lot of opportunity for us to talk, but I just, I, I just never felt like anybody did anything yeah. with any of the information. Even the focus groups, I still don't feel like anybody did anything with that information. Nobody distilled it in any way or talked about like what came out of it, what they were going to do with it. This is Karen's perspective as well. Conversations started happening, but without visible actions, trust broke down. Unfortunately, I don't think I saw as many actions as I would have liked. I saw a lot of conversations that felt like they, they were going to lead someplace and they didn't necessarily, you know, that there was a, a good group of women, you know, at middle manager to director positions who were able to get into a room with the male leadership and say like, what is happening? And it was not transparent and it was not as productive as I think that a lot of us had hoped it would be. Uh, there was a lot of you know, kind of HR, PR garbage, being like, we're going to address things, we're going to look at stuff. And I think that there were a lot of women in leadership who really wanted that. But I think that there's a lot of things around that that make men very uncomfortable. And then I think, you know, from a company's point of view, it was challenging for them to produce the information and metrics that the women were demanding. Yeah. And that made it you know, I think trust became an issue then. Yeah. So like when you say there, you didn't feel like there was enough transparency around those conversations, like what exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean like who's in the room and what they're talking about or what? Yeah. I mean, I think who's in the room, what, what are they talking about? I think there were multiple conversations being had at multiple levels. A lot of the women wanted information and just data. You know, like how many women are at what at what level? Yeah. Um, and like, what does the salary range at those levels? Is there parity between men and women? Mm -hmm. And there wasn't transparency on that. That was frustrating. The lack of information spurred Wen to keep pushing. Here's Donnie. At the end of the day, I think it helped push us to get more answers out of everybody. It kind of lit a fire under our ass because they weren't giving us the answers. It was April and then May. We finally sat at the table with the president. We're like, why aren't you telling us this? And I've never got answers out of it. It was, really, it was starting to get too political at the end because of 
all of that stuff. And I know that I could tell just by the look in the eyes of some of the women that were there since the beginning and really wanted to make change, thought Amy and I were kind of being puppets. And we were for a minute because we were being told, you need to get bylaws, you need to get your mission statement, you need to do all of these things, and you need to turn them in by this time or you can't get your budget. And I'm like, well, we already got $10,000. We don't need your 2,500, but we'll take it. (laughs) Right, right. right. But when we started doing that, I could see some women going, you're just, you know, you're, what is that called when people like give in to something or. Right. It's like selling out. Yeah. And we were trying not to, but at the same time, at the same time, I have to say this to you, and I, I don't want to discredit myself like I always seem to do, but I wasn't in a leadership role at that company. I wasn't in even the start of a leadership role in that company. I wasn't a manager or a director. I wasn't any executive, and nor was Amy. And we had to figure it out. So sometimes it helped us to have this structure, this Bible of things to do, because that allowed us to go, oh, okay, we can structure this better and better. So that helped us. Thus begins the complicated relationship between Wen and the corporate team. They weren't getting the data and the answers that they wanted. But at the same time, Wen was the company's solution to the ceilings issue. They were being asked to attend more meetings. The things they were doing were being included and held up as things a company was doing to support diversity and inclusion. Their structure and bylaws were being co-opted by the company to create other ERGs, which was both great and, as Karen stated, had strings attached. You know, when it didn't feel like it was really what it was meant for, which was just honest, open conversations, no strings attached. You know, once it started feeling like there's strings attached, it, it kind of felt gross to me. And even in terms of when, you know, we were one of the first employee groups to to write our own bylaws. That's the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we wrote the bylaws before there was corporate, you know, corporate template for that. So I think that, that when the when we wrote the bylaws and it felt more true to what we were, and then they're like, revise them, make them in our format. That's where again it felt icky and just felt like mashing everything into the same mold. Um, and that didn't feel good. The grassroots movement was being quote corporatized. And not everyone in WEN agreed this was a good thing. It felt icky. During this time, WEN lost two of their biggest advocates. Both the Patties, the head of regional HR, and the WEN president left the organization. Losing two women leaders' wisdom and voices left a gap that would be difficult to fill. I asked Karen to reflect on the role that the regional HR team played from the beginning. When did they get support and where did it get sticky? <laughs> what, what do you remember about HR being involved? Patty was the one who really, quite, she wanted quietly for things to happen. I remember that. And again, I think that at my level, I did not interact with her a lot. I got the general sense she funded all these lunches and invited all these women to come. She bought us books, you know, she bankrolled a ton. And I remember her saying at one point, like, 
you know, I'm so happy that women are doing this. So I felt like in the background, HR was very supportive, but I also feel like there were certain people in HR who the, their role, like their corporate role seemed to be blending with the uh, employee resource group goal. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think some people did a really good job of keeping it separate. Like you did a really good job in terms of like not blending the two. But I think other people, it felt like you couldn't distinguish between like when they had their HR hat on and when they didn't. And I think as an associate who really wanted to be grassroots, that's where, again, it felt icky. And any, I think that at a brand level, we were given a little bit more autonomy. When it became more of a corporate thing, it felt like HR wanted to be able to control everything. And right. that didn't feel authentic and that didn't feel for me personally tolerable and that's you know again one of the reasons that I didn't really want to continue. Remember ideally ERGs work with the company to accomplish their goals but the brutal reality in this situation is that these relationships are complicated as each party has their own goals and they don't always align. Most intentions are good but the impact may not be. Some associates were more apprehensive to, to talk about things openly, especially when we're talking about parity and like just mm-hmm. leadership opportunities with HR present. Mm-hmm. Not you, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a super super weird dynamic, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is as far as HR's involvement in ERGs, like at at all. You know what yeah. the right balance is, there is. Um, and what, what are the appropriate things for them to like be partnering with ERGs to do and not appropriate? And yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, I think ERGs in general feel like where's the line to me because I think a, a lot of the activities happen during work hours, but you still have your own job to do. And people who went overboard on the ERG part, like didn't do their actual jobs versus the people who like their actual jobs always dominated over them actually participating. Like, I think that you have to find a balance. The HR associates who could participate and kind of keep the separate hats, that was good. But I think it made it really hard to understand people's motivations when they're in HR. I think people question them more. Right, right, right. ERGs are hard, though. Somebody's going to always feel excluded, and that's the part that feels like, how do you ever find that right balance? Totally. So, I mean, I think even from, like, the male perspective, you know, men didn't always understand when. I think a lot of the male leaders who we had support from early on, they didn't really want to have a a big vocal point of view around a lot of it. And I think they did things quietly to help support it. But I think that men showing up is still something that has to have happen where it mm-hmm. can really become, like, a normalized conversation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus right. like you're the one dude on day one being like this is awesome and then just you never see them again totally right and then I think also there's a balance there too like if men are involved no one wants to be mansplained in a women's ERG <laughs> and that's happened <laughs> so I think I think that you know that's challenging in itself how do you have a women's empowerment ERG with male involvement yeah, I think it's a great question. It's like, how do you have a safe space 
for women while also making it inclusive? I mean, it's the same question about like a diverse quote diversity ERG, you know, like, I don't know what the answer is. It's tricky. And it's all, it's all the man is funding all of this. Like, let's be honest, is your paycheck and pays for you to be at this little women's gathering. So there's only so much you can do and say. Yeah. Despite Karen's insistence that I could juggle both hats, my inability to understand the complex relationship between HR and ERGs will soon bite me in the ass. There was a bright spot in the fallout of the Breaking Ceilings campaign. Remember when Jen mentioned that new person in her unconscious bias training? Well, she was a new VP. Within six months, two new women VPs were hired. So while the corporate team was conducting focus groups, creating multi-tiered roadmaps, and launching training, Wen was continuing their work. They developed four pillars and created working groups for each. Career development, culture, commerce, and community. Next episode, we'll hear about the solutions that they developed on their own, because they were done pleading for answers. Initially, like HR told us no on the mentorship program. They told us no on all that stuff. They're like, well, we don't know if like policy wise it's okay. And if they told us no, we would just figure it out ourselves and ask for mentorship on our own. If people tell me no, I just look at it as like another way, like an, I'll find another way. For me, it was just more or less like, we'll figure it out. Like, let's just ask for forgiveness after. Right. Let's just do it. Also, the WIN team will have to work pretty quickly on those solutions because the company has a big surprise coming for everyone. 